Hi there. Welcome to 2024, for what it's worth, as we look towards this insanely bleak view ahead of us. I'm back in DC, as you probably all know. I had a nice break, although I was sick for most of it, and stayed in bed, which was nice, though. Got a lot of sleep. And, uh, you know, here we are. Got a great season coming up. We also had a great end of the year. We had a huge burst of traffic and of subscriptions at the end of the year, for which we are intensely grateful. We now are, I think, at a, basically our record numbers that we've ever had, basically. We don't want that much more. We're not aiming for world domination. We're just interested in in having the right group of people thinking about the right things in the right way. And as part of that, this week, we're going to talk about a subject that has popped up many times on this podcast and is pressing for our political life this year, and that's civility. How do we conduct ourselves with each other in a way that is civil, that is worthy of citizenship in a republic, that is worthy of us as human beings, when we live in such a polarized, ideological, nasty, rude, ill-mannered world? And Alexandra Hudson has written a book, The Soul of Civility, Timeless Principles to Heal Society and Ourselves. It's out. It's published by St. Martin's Press. Alexandra, or Lexi, as her friends call her, is an award-winning journalist, author, and speaker, as well as the founder of Civic Renaissance, a newsletter and intellectual community dedicated to moral and cultural renewal. Alexandra, thank you so much for coming. Welcome to the Dishcast. Andrew, really thrilled to be here. Thank you for having me. Let me start with what we usually start with, which is tell me, where were you born and, and where did you grow up? I was born in Los Angeles and kind of Hollywood area, born at Hollywood General in Van Nuys. And then I was raised in Vancouver, Canada. That is my true home. I got married there. My coming of age was there. A lot of my family is still there. And my soul is most at home when I have mountains and ocean in the same eye line. And there are a few places in the world other than Vancouver where you can have that. So I love, 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 passionate so, love for Vancouver, Canada. You said the same eye line? What, what did you say? I'm sorry. You can, yeah, you can look out and you see the ocean and oh, you see the mountains in, in Vancouver. Yeah, and I grew up kind of outside of Vancouver in, in horse country. And so you have, it's just a beautiful city as well. So it's kind of an embarrassment of riches. Love Vancouver. And why did your parents go there? Why did you move to Vancouver? My mother is Canadian. She's from oh. Toronto originally. My father's from New England. We grew up doing summers in, in Maine with his side of the family. They met in, in, when my mom was doing her grad school. My dad was a postdoc in, in Virginia at Regent University. And he was shooting a commercial. My mother was the beautiful blonde graduate student who was the star of the commercial, the recruit, re recruitment commercial. And the rest was history after that. And so we, he took a job teaching, heading the, the cinematography film communications department at Trinity Western University in Vancouver, Canada, about 20, 25 years ago. And that's where he's been. That's where he's taught for much of his life and career. And that's where I went to school, Trinity Western, studied history and, and political theory there, small Christian liberal arts college there. Although some of my professors would cynically say I you know, got a liberal arts degree despite the institution that is kind of trending towards the more vocational <laughs> business, utilitarian vision of education. So, but I loved, I loved school. I loved education. And I'd say a salient thing about my childhood was that my parents are both high achievers, highly credentialed, 
but unbelievably curious people. I would say curiosity was kind of the defining ethos of, of my home growing up, just like a, a fundamental wonderment about the world around you. Like my dad has three masters and a PhD. My mother has her graduate degree and they, you know, they, they care a lot about formal education, but they knew and embodied and modeled for us that learning was a way of life. It wasn't something that just happened in the classroom. And that actually autodidactism is the subject of my next book. <laughs> so but really care a lot about the life of the mind and, and learning for its own sake. And Trinity Western, you said, is a, is a Christian school. Is your, your parents, yeah. were your parents brought you up as a Christian? Yes. Tell correct. me about that. What kind of Christian? My father was raised Catholic, and my mother was very Baptist, very evangelical, very Baptist. How did that and go down? How did that combo work? It, 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 it's funny. I think it's more funny the way it plays out. Now, growing up, it kind of played out like my father was kind of culturally Catholic and his faith was was important to him. But I, you know, growing up, we kind of went to church more for my mom and and for my father, he is very cerebral. He's incredibly, you know, really cares about the life of the mind and the intellect. And so he, I would say a lot of the evangelical churches we went to growing up didn't really, you know, stimulate his mind in the way, engage his mind in the way that he would have liked. And so it was kind of like something he did to appease and indulge my mother. And, uh, and church was always kind of something of, you know, whether we could squeeze it in around soccer tournaments and, and, and volleyball games and things like that on Sundays. Um, but you know, to, to today, and, and I would say that's kind of my experience of of the church, and, and and my faith has always been very important to me. But the life of the mind is where I feel the classroom was always like where I felt kind of most intellect, most spiritually vibrant and alive. And I have always kind of felt, yeah, less intellectually alive in church than I did like than I would reading Augustine. That's because you Kier went to an evangelical church. <laughs> yeah, there you go. There you go. But so so it was a, it was an evangelical upbringing you had basically, and Trinity Western yeah. is 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 evangelical as well. It is exactly. So you didn't go to mass really growing up. Catholicism was just an influence on your father, and then you grew up as an evangelical Christian. Exactly, and how how that interplay plays out today is my mother is still very you know very Baptist, and my father loves all the vices. Like you know, we grew up playing poker games with his side of the family and, and gambling, and and my father you know loves loves to drink, and and my mother is still very Baptist, and and well, <laughs> good. I'm, I'm I'm glad your father is being a good sinful Catholic and exactly. uh, enjoying the fruits of the earth and the world as we all all should. So how did you then so you grew you 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 become interested you say in 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 political theory? How did that how did that happen? You know, both my parents really engaged my brothers and I the level of of the mind growing up. My father would read to us about Plato's theory of the forms at night and really? he did what one of his masters on, on on Plato and Nietzsche, putting their ideas in, into dialogue together, and yeah, and I, I think that yeah, I, I always felt like we were we were just always comfortable having these sort of conversations at home and around the dinner table, and I definitely think that my love of of the life of, the, of, of learning and philosophy was you know a desire to meet my my dad at that level, like to to be able to have those kind of conversations with him, which we still you know have and, and really enjoy together, and. So I, I I care a lot about philosophy and and the true, the good, and the beautiful. But when I was an undergrad, I became really influenced by the civic renaissance humanists who cared about antiquity, classical, Greco-Roman culture, life, and ideas, and but but wanted to apply them 
to the here and the here and the now to make you know Renaissance Italy better, more beautiful, more functioning, and, and lead fuller lives. So this high potential, high high view of humanity and high view of, of human potentiality. That 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 was really that's kind of where my my publication Civic Renaissance pays homage to that, taking ideas and putting them into practice to to the end of helping us lead better and and richer lives. And that's very much the intersection of my book and work. So tell me, after college, what, what, what did you do? So after college, I did my graduate degree at the London School of Economics in public policy. Ooh. I looked at, I, I remember having this sort of existential crisis. I... <laughs> I kind of felt frustrated by my liberal arts degree. I was like, I know a lot about Plato, but not much about how the world works or what I'm going to do with my life. What am I going to do for a job? There aren't a lot of like in-house philosopher roles to be had in, in the marketplace today. But I knew I cared about putting ideas into practice. And I, I also love the old world. And I knew I wanted to, I only looked at grad schools on the continent and in the UK. And I ended up doing my master's in public policy at the London School of Economics as a Rotary Scholar focusing on education. And that was my you know, crash course in the real world. I am very grateful to have my then fiance and now, now husband who was a man of Amount of political science. I, I love like ideas and history and philosophy. He was like very much kind of in the world of political science, and he was kind of my personal tutor in qualitative, quantitative methods that really grounded me in the world that that was, and that that was a helpful experience, kind of melding what I loved and seeing how it, how it could apply to the the world that was. And was of he, course, was he English? No, he's he's as American as they come. But, but you met him in London. No, no, no. We met. Oh. We met in DC. Oh, okay. uh, he's he's actually a Hoosier. He's from he's from Indiana originally, which is why we live here now. So after that, you went to Washington. And That's right. You hated it. So exactly after after London, we actually moved to Milwaukee, Wisconsin. My husband was clerking for a federal judge. I worked at a local think think tank doing education policy and that felt like the best of all worlds the the ideas and the practice you know i could sit in my office and write a white paper and then you know sit down and talk to public leaders about my ideas and i was hoping to have like more of that kind of really rewarding sort of public policy experience in washington i we moved to dc 2017 to oh no no sorry fall of 2016 and i thought you know what what should I do here? The, it felt like, you know, I was so optimistic. The world felt like it was my oyster. I was like, do I go to journalism? Do I go to a think tank again? Do I go on the Hill? You know, I, I, I felt like anything was possible except the executive branch because, of course, Hillary Clinton was going to be our president. And I, like many others in our world, were surprised when Donald Trump became president, but I ended up being asked to serve in his administration, mostly because like I had no business, no business being there. I, you who, know, who didn't... did have any business being there? <laughs> well, mostly because, you know, anyone who was qualified to be there, many people said, I will never work for Donald Trump. And then many others who would have been qualified to be there, Donald Trump didn't want to work with because they were insufficiently supportive or critical of him. So there was like a smaller pool to choose from. And, and me, 20, 22 year old, 23 year old me ended up in at the U.S. Department of Education, uh, I was the I was in the secretary's office with Secretary DeVos for for six months, and then I was in the office of special education and rehabilitative services for six months. And when I that that latter part, you know, I was the only political appointee in an office of three hundred people, most of which who despised me. 
before they even knew me because of who I was there because of. I was there because Donald Trump was president, secretary was secretary, and that was for many of them enough to you know, not give me the time of day or actively like seek to undermine me and make my life very difficult. And, you know, I, I, I care deeply about, I, I have a lot of con- confidence in social norms and, and my ability to kind of navigate difference with social graces. My mother is called Judy, the manners lady. She is someone who's an inter- international expert in manners and etiquette. And as I learned while writing this book, actually, she's one of four women who are international experts on etiquette and manners in our era who are named Judith. There are four of them. The most prominent is probably Miss Martin. I'm sorry, Judith Martin, the, the, the Washington Post columnist, but there are three others, including my mother. But um, my mother had raised us to navigate to, to, to be able to handle ourselves in social contexts with 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 aplomb. And and you know, she taught us how to mind our P's and Q's. And I remember always rebelling growing up. I hated being told what to do. I, I always questioned why we do things the way we do them. And I hungered for an explanation behind our social norms and expectations. Is it just because some, you know, Judy of another era, <laughs> some some mismanners of another era said it should be so, and if so, is that the best way to the, like should we continue? And um, so I always question these norms. My mother promised that they would lead to success in work and life. Um, and, do you remember and a moment well. when you challenged your mom? Uh, I do, I do. Like we were, you know, she would ask me to set the table, for example, and I would let I'd be like, you know, why? Why do we why do we do it like this with with forks here, knives here, spoons here, water glass here? Why why are we why are we even using forks at all? And often her reply, you know, annoyed with me, just wanting to get the table set or move on with our day would be, this is just the way we do it. Like, don't ask questions, just get it done. <laughs> and and so that's you know one one small example. But but who, we, how would you eat without a fork? I mean, people do it with chopsticks. People do it with oh, their hands. Oh, okay, okay, okay. They have yeah. Have culture. They do today. You know, there's nothing morally superior to eating with a fork, although manners and social norms and and you, which utensils you use and how you eat, things like that have been weaponized across history and culture to tell you know perpetuate perpetuate these narratives of cultural superiority. But that's that's not the case. Well, let's get let's get to that actually because it's maybe an interesting way to get into this. We're at dinner. We're having dinner, and there's a, and you 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 make a a distinction in the book between politeness and civility. So now there are some things at dinner that you're not supposed to do, right? You're not supposed to grab someone else's food. You're not supposed to put your elbows on the table, really. You're not supposed to eat too quickly. Uh, what, 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 explain the difference in pol- uh, politeness and, and civility in the context of a dinner party. So... In the context of a dinner party, politeness would be the manners, the etiquette, the decorum, whereas civility would be your approach to the dinner party itself, your attitude, your disposition towards your fellow dining partners. You know, it would be more focused, it would be less focused on the the minutiae of the proprieties themselves and more focused on the norms to the extent that they facilitate conversation Mm -hmm. and foster and friendship and the enjoyment of the evening. So one example I give in my book, I have a handy little chart <laughs> that has the difference between the civility and politeness with some examples in my introduction of my book. And I use the example of a, of a dinner party. So say that you're sitting next to someone and you notice them commit a egregious faux pas. This is a very elevated dinner party. And you see the, you see the person next to you, for example, they tip what is a finger bowl in front of them to their lips and drink it 
as though it were soup, okay? Just not done. It's obviously a finger bowl. But so a, a polite person might, you know, see that faux pas, that 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 violation of social norms, and smugly, you know, judge the other person as a member of the uninitiated and feel self-righteous in their knowledge of the of the rules of etiquette and politeness that make them feel superior and better and morally, yeah, morally better than their than their dining compatriot. The the civil person would ignore the faux pas or even possibly even like take them aside and say, actually, that's a finger bowl, just so they don't you know, embarrass themselves or make the mistake again in the future. But this gets to a core idea, several core ideas about the difference between civility and politeness, that politeness is about the act, it's technique, it's external, whereas civility is, is internal. It's less about what you do and more about why you do it. And so one thing I, I say throughout the book is that civility sometimes demands being impolite, breaking rules of propriety and etiquette in order to actually respect someone, to actually foster friendship or, or conversation or actually respect. So in, in that case, even though it might be uncomfortable or even considered rude to, to, to call someone out, even, even though it's privately for, for breaking, you know, making a faux pas, you know, that might embarrass them, but it's risking that embarrassment for the sake of actually respecting them. Except, actually, wasn't there, isn't, I, I'm, forgive me, I, I seem to remember Queen Victoria or some, there was some yeah. queen or some a royal queen who who this happened at a dinner, at exactly. a dinner. and the right response is to pick up your finger bowl and drink it yourself because so that that instantly diffuses the the because the point is to make a guest in your home feel completely comfortable not out of place Here's the story that, that Queen Victoria was having a state dinner and she had the Queen of Persia to her home. And of course, this is Queen Victoria presiding over Victorian England, like very attentive to these elaborate arcane proprieties and, and social expectations and rituals. So the Queen of Persia sits down to dinner and does the unthinkable. She takes the finger bowl and tips it to her lips and sips it like soup. The room is aghast. What is Queen Victoria going to do? She, and in fact, she surprised the room by taking the finger bowl and tipping it to her own lips as well. Like she broke this, this convention, you know, maybe even her own convention. Why? For the sake of friendship, for the sake of community, for the sake of making her guest feel welcome and, and having, building trust and having conversation. And for the So sake that's of being their... civil rather than polite. Exactly. So if you're being... sat next to someone who's a real bore, and they keep talking to you and you you talk to the person opposite you you kind of that's also uncivil right we have to we have to we have to we have to engage everyone around us equally or we're being being rude sorry can you repeat the question if you ignored the person next to you who was a complete bore who was oh, going okay. on about something and you just started talking to the person across the table from you because you couldn't bear this conversation that would be uncivil right as well as impolite probably but you know I, I don't have a lot of tolerance for, for boorish people. I feel like I'd find some sort of excuse to engage the person on the other side of me instead. Well, then you break your own rules. I mean, it also I seems know, to I me that so, you- I do you, so all the time, I know. Right, but you, you also want to say that we should be nice people because it comes genuinely from within. We don't have some sort of hypocrisy involved in this where we, we're thinking, God, what an awful bore this person is. Meanwhile, we are talking to them as if they're the most interesting person in the world. Now that, strikes me as hypocrisy, but it's a good form of hypocrisy. It's a way so, in which you are not sincere in your actions, but you're actually trying to be polite and, and, and be respectful of the person, even though you're obviously pretending to be something that you're not. Yeah, it's a great point. I love this. I love this line from Arnold Bennett's book. I love this book called How to Live on 24 Hours a Day. And he says, nothing in life is humdrum. 
that and what he's saying is that everything is interesting through curious eyes that curious like like no one's a bore if you're actually earnestly interested in others and really curious about them and that's why i have a whole section of my book on curiosity why curiosity is both inherently good and 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 a part of the good life but also an important tool to healing our divides like not just saying okay you are this way or you think this way therefore you're a bad person but saying let's understand you know the story behind why you and, and being curious about the reasons why people are the way they are, think the way that they that So they you're do. sitting next to someone, they start boring on about something that you're not familiar with or that you find tedious. But your, your role then is to say, what is in this person that I could be find interesting? Right. Because like, everyone does have something to teach us. Everyone does. It's, right. I, I, do, I, do, I do believe that. And I love what you said a second ago, Andrew, about how you might feign interest when you don't really... When you, when you don't really feel interested. And and so what you called hypocrisy, I actually distinguish in my book, my chapter three on integrity, I call that inauthenticity. So hypocrisy comes from the Greek word hypocrisis, which means like pretense or play acting. And it's, it's a disconnect between inner motives and outer conduct. And I go a level further to say that that disconnect exists to serve the self. Okay, so I, I, I kind of categorize hypocrisy as inherently negative, but sometimes there is a disconnect that exists between inner, inner motivation or inner feeling and outer conduct that exists to serve others, that exists to for, for, for a greater good. For example, when I've had a, a, you know, a frustrating day and you know my husband comes home from work and I, you know, he asks me a question and I, for some reason, want to bite his head off. I bite my tongue, you know, like I might inner, inner, in my, my, my core might want to like lash out because I've had a bad day, but I don't do that. Like that, that's a profound disconnect between my inner desires and my outer conduct, but it's for the sake of our relationship that I love him and that I care about our friendship and I don't want to act on impulse for the, in, in the heat of a moment for no reason. And so for, for, for the example that you gave that, you know, you believe you might believe to your core in the power of conversation to heal our divides and, and that see, curiosity. What, 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 what's the root of this is that you're essentially saying that all humans are of equal worth. And if you're in front of someone and they appear to be boring to you, there's something in them that is worth knowing and worth understanding. That's right. But that's and rooted, just, that's no. rooted in a, in a deeper, idea that all humans are equal and fundamentally dignified, which is not necessarily a given in vast majority of human history and, and even in our own time. Underneath all of this yes. is a premise of the equality of humans and their equal dignity. That's not a given mm-hmm. in, in culture or in society. In fact, has not been a given in, the, right. in a vast variety of contexts, yeah. the majority of human interactions. So you have to first sort of deal with the premises here, which is about the equal dignity of humans, a sort of democratic, sort of Christian idea of the equal worth of all humans. Now, that's, that's not a given. It's certainly not given in our society today. It's, it's, not, it's, it's, it's integral to the Christian worldview. Mm-hmm. But how do you get that without the Christian worldview? It's a, it's a great point. I think a lot of people accept the consequences of equal human dignity because people love human rights today. We love human rights. Like everyone says they're pro, you know, pro human rights and and we forget the moral, philosophical, 
religious underpinnings of human rights, which is the Judeo-Christian tradition. I love the book by by Tom Holland called Dominion about explicitly, I don't know if you've had him on your guest, he'd be a great, a great guest, but he explicitly about how Christianity and and this idea of, of charity and what and the, and the dignity of not just your fellow citizen, you know, your, your, your fellow person of your station, but of all human beings, that that was radical and transformative. It is, and, and it un- was, but it's also it, not, I mean, people may mouth it, but it's not how they feel or how they behave. And my, my worry is when you talk about civility, you, you're resting it on a premise that is not necessarily in existence, that is not, that people do think someone is dumber than they are, and why should they talk to this person? Because they have nothing to say. Or they do think they're somehow superior by virtue of class, or sometimes of race, all sorts of ways in which human beings regard other human beings as not as equal as them. So to some extent, you're saying that civility itself is dependent upon Christianity? One one thing I write about in my book is that this is not, this is the most important question of our day. My book is about how might we flourish across deep difference? This is also the defining question of democracy, of the classical liberal project. How do we do life together even when we deeply differ? And yet, as I began writing this book and researching for this book, I realized that this is actually the defining human question as well. As long as we've been around as a species, we've been trying to do this thing called life together. We're profoundly social as doggedly social as a species. We become fully human, we thrive in relationship with others. And yet, morally and biologically, we're driven to meet our own needs before others. And those two facets of who we are, the social love of others and the, lo- and the love of self, the selfish, the, those two things are intention. And that is why this thing called life together, this joint project of, 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 of life with others, whether it's friendship, whether it's democracy, whether it's a, you know any form of human community, it's fragile. It is never a foregone conclusion. It's precarious and it takes vigilant effort by each by each member of, of the community to see it sustained, to see it propagate. And what I explored, what I discovered rather while, while researching for this book is that these principles of how we might flourish together across deep difference are remarkably timeless. That the principles, that the, the tenets of politeness those tend to be the, the etiquette, the mores, the So what would you say timeless? What do you mean timeless? I mean that they have remained rather constant across history and a culture. So in chapter one of my book, I unpack that the timelessness of this problem. I go back to the Epic of Gilgamesh, the oldest story in the world to unpack just how timeless this this problem really is. That that it, it's not it's not a now problem. It's not a Donald Trump problem. It's well, not we a know democracy. it's not a timeless problem, but why is civility the timeless solution? Right. So chapter two of my book, I unpack why and how civility is the timeless solution, because it is about both the bare minimum of respect that we are owed and owed to others by virtue of our shared humanity. And it's also about restraint. It's about self-control. Let's stop you there, our shared humanity. The Greeks, the ancient Greeks you talk about, did not believe in a shared humanity. They believed there were Greeks and there were others. That's right. And that is by far the most common view of the world. So again, you're making a case about civility about actually making the case for human equality. So I, in ancient Greece, I, I illuminate the story of the mismanners of the Greco-Roman world. He was an orator named Isocrates, and he had a knack for 
pinning his pinning his prospects to the wrong horse. Isocrates was he was he wrote this letter to to Demonicus, the friend of one of his sons, uh, the, the son of one of his friends, which offered kind of just precepts to ha- how to lead a good life. And what's amazing is that this was he he you know Isocrates lived like. 400 years BC. And and the, 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 these these tenets could appear in a mismanners column today. So it's things like don't gossip, don't be don't be don't be a fair weather friend. You know, be a good friend even when your friends need you. Um, be 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 generous and 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 good See, like find find reasons to seek the good for 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 your community. And it's all this like conventional wisdom that we kind of take for granted today. And what I found was that even authors that predated Isocrates from ancient Egypt, from ancient Arabia, and authors that came after Isocrates, they tend to preach these similar these similar tenets of of restraint of, of sacrificing the ego that 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 baser part of our nature the self love for the sake of living well with others and that that is that is the core of 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 civility of 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 human flourishing and that 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 I have I did I I, I, go, I shall go through examples from ancient China to you know to the Maharabhat and the Ramayana and ancient in, in in the Indian tradition to show that there is there are these constant principles for doing and, life with us. The argument is that if you follow these rules, then then we will all live happier lives, essentially. That it's actually a better for all of us if we are a little less selfish and a little bit more aware of the other in society. That's exactly right. I argue that civility is an inherent good. It is treating someone else well just because just because just because they're a person just like us. But it's also an instrumental good. It's what it's the, it's the stuff of of society, of democracy, of 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 the good life. That that it's actually good for us at an instrumental level. Like we're happier and we're more prosperous and fulfilled in community as a species. It's part of it's part of who we are. Tell me why then today we seem to conduct ourselves in public with such animosity, with such hostility, with such lack of care. In fact, the notion that others are a deep threat to us. The, you know, the, the 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 once and probably future President Trump is a deeply, profoundly uncivil person. Right? I mean, he he actually disrespects mm-hmm. almost everyone he comes into contact with and spreads distrust and loathing of everyone he's in contact with, and does really well. So, how does a civil person deal with someone like Donald Trump and so the culture meant- that he is 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 a part of? So, I mentioned Donald Trump one time in my book and it's buried in a kind of off paragraph three quarters of the way through and original versions of my manuscript didn't even mention him at all i didn't want to because it felt like you know it feels like any mention of trump is just like a war shark test i didn't want people to open my book and find what i had to say on trump and then define my entire book by whether i was quote unquote pro or against you know donald trump and so but i did mention him in one paragraph where i talk about how it, it, it's really tempting for people to claim that Trump is is to blame for our current moment of incivility. And that's one contribution I think I make to this discussion is that this is not a new problem. This is not a Trump problem, not an America problem, not a democracy problem. This is a problem of the human condition. Again, it goes back to the... the but the, he does represent the worst part of the human tradition, right? I mean, in as much as he despises civility... He's and a regards, symptom. Regards not, any other person that he comes in contact with, not as a 
a fellow equal, but as someone who can be dominated. He is, he's exactly what you say civility is supposed to oppose. He's a symptom, not a cause of our current problem. And well, can't I he also be a cause? Can he also not make it worse? Because he, course, legi- he legitimizes no it? He there's legitimizes no, no question that he coarsened our public discourse and our public life. But my concern is that we are far too quick to point fingers and blame Mark Zuckerberg, social media, the 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 viciousness and the the profit motives of our of our media cycle. You know, Maxine Waters or Anthony Scaramucci or Donald Trump. Who it doesn't matter. Hillary Clinton. Like doesn't matter who the vic, the, the 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 big bad the villain is. There are just no. There's no end of 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 epiphenomena and new public figures and new technologies that we could try to pinpoint as, 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 as and that, that have changed our world in, in really important ways. Absolutely. But my book is more about what we can do to make the world better. I mean, the subtitle of my book really says it all. It it it, it cogently distills the essence of my argument. The subtitle of my book, it's my book is called The Soul of Civility, and the subtitle is Timeless Principles to Heal Society and Ourselves. And but I my f- point is simply this, cool. Alexandra, is that is that this figure is such an important person in our culture and is spewing daily hatred of civility it argues that there should be no civility essentially except and that there should be no relationship except his mastery of others now this is this is now there are many there are many challenges to civility there's the anonymity of being online there's 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 a there's for example the the way in which people demonstrate today which is incredibly nasty and confrontational but the president and the party he represents and supports him is a very important factor in our society. And I just, I honestly find it very hard to understand how someone who, who could write about civility could ever have worked for such a man. Can you, no, can you explain that? Well, how do you feel about Trump? There's no question. Hi there. That Donald Trump this is not the end of this podcast. In fact, we're only just getting going. If you're a paid subscriber and are hearing this, it means you haven't yet signed up for the full new package to get our podcast in full. No extra charge. Just go to andrewsullivan.substack.com forward slash listen, L-I-S-T-E-N, and make sure your podcast is up to date with the DishCast. You'll be able to add it to your DishCast feed and never have this hear this message again and go back to exactly what you've been doing for the last two years. And I'd like to thank you too for contributing for so long. If you're hearing this message and you haven't yet subscribed and want to listen to the rest of the podcast, then just subscribe. It's very easy. AndrewSullivan.substack.com is 50 bucks a year. Great value for money. And you also get with that the entire weekly dish every Friday. Not just my weekly column, but also all the comments and dissents on that column. You also have a full discussion of the previous week's dish cast. So all those questions you had in your mind can be answered, or you can hear and read readers debating what we talked about, sometimes uh, calling me to account. andrewsullivan.substack.com. Subscribe and get the whole thing. Join the debate. Join the fun. Subscribe. <laughs>